Part 5. The Meaning of Life You ask, what is the meaning of life? You do so because you can. Your inclination and ability to ask this very question are incidental to the evolution of predictive mental models. These models emulate and predict the specific physical aspects of reality that have determined survival and passage of genetic information from and between species over 3.8 billion of years. The fact that you can ask this question is an offshoot of your brain's ability to model and predict the reality without requiring sensory input or motor output. Your brain can now ruminate freely and endlessly. The urge we have to ask what is the meaning of life is linked with our nature of being threat detectors. We have evolved because we detect threats and respond to them, all species do. The lack of sensory awareness to the neuronal activity that generates predictive mental models creates a void and becomes a threat in itself. Where are these endless thoughts coming from? You model a world and fear threats without any sensory input and motor outputs. This can be a curse. Why do we live? Why do we die? Who are we? What is the point of all this? The moment in evolution when predictive mental models became independent of sensory inputs and motor outputs, existential crises were born. You will say, this is too complicated an answer and does not really satisfy me. You need an answer. What is the meaning of life? This is a question you likely ask yourself at some point and perhaps still do. Since you are listening to this podcast, curious about its very title, aha, I got your attention, didn't I? You heard scientific jargon, surely the meaning of life does not entail knowing all of this. If you did not jump straight to this part, you might have suffered through all this dry material. You might not even be listening to this, having given up on the density or seemingly scattered focus of this podcast. I, the host, say that philosophy is a private club for members only. It can be opaque, so opaque. Well, so can be science, but the scientific method is at its very foundation the best tool we have to observe, yes, to observe the reality around us. Some scientists and science communicators are more apt at making it accessible, more gifted than I am. With the shortening of attention span fostered by electronic media, educators and communicators need to have pizzazz. Some have whole teams devoted to their endeavors. If you jump directly here to part 5, then why not cut to the chase and do a podcast based on this part? You might also ask, why all this science, often dry and inaccessible to many? To which I reply, context. One needs context. If you did jump straight to this part, please allow me a recap for context's sake. I promise lay language, compassionate to all types of listeners. The first part makes the point that the brain constructs the reality you experience and can do so even without sensory stimuli. I used vision as an example 
since this is my field of expertise. The eyes do not act as cameras. If they did, you certainly would not experience visual images when closing your eyes or when dreaming. An hallucination would be hard to explain. Also, we fall for illusions because they result in discordances between the image observed and how the brain constructs them. Starting in the eyes, image are decomposed into specific aspects that are sent to the brain to be analyzed separately in distinct regions to ultimately produce a unified, coherent visual experience. The second part makes the point that our senses and how we react with our internal and external environment to survive and reproduce have evolved from single cells dating 3.8 billion years ago. By following the evolution of these single cells, we can track similar features for sensing and reacting. Allow me one word with a science flavor. Transduction. Transduction means changing one form of energy into another form. Taking vision as an example, light energy is transformed into a chemical reaction, the manner in which mostly all known species sense light starts with the same molecule in single cells dating billions of years ago. When hit by light, this molecule changes its shape, which triggers a series of chemical and electrical events culminating to the creation of mental images, conscious or not, and an output, voluntary or not, if required for survival or reproduction. Another point is that most of the evolution of sensing took place in single cells, which were the only form of life on Earth for the first 3.258 billion years. Picture this stretch of time, ample time for trial and error, with genetic mutations and exchanges of genetic information between cells. The one common variable in life is the exchange of genetic information. As I mentioned, in the introduction, we carry genes. Once we accept it, we are free to live. We can understand why we ask what is the meaning of life. We'll get back to that. The last 0.542 billion years, which represent only 14% of life's timeline on Earth, uh, saw the evolution of all multicellular organisms. Yes, all of them. Grouped as one organism, cells became specialized. In a figurative way, single cells sacrificed their own survival by being part of multicellular organism. Some cells became sensors, while others became effectors. Between these cells, interneurons evolved to generate a representation of the environment in which an organism survives and reproduces. The take-home message here is that the process of evolution is continuous. No external agent came into play at some point so that novel species became conscious or suddenly had a soul. If you're searching for the sight of the soul or mind, or if you prefer thoughts, and you're wondering why we have the ability to ask the question, what is the meaning of life? Then you ought to be looking between sensors and effectors at interneurons. The third part presents the various levels linking sensors and effectors. Single cells rely on the first level since they possess both the sensor and the effectors.
However, do not think the linkage between both is simple. Roaming the Earth alone for 3.258 billion of years, single cells evolve highly intricate manners of sensing and acting with their internal and external environments. Numerous genes with highly specialized functions evolved during this very long period of time, allowing for countless mutations and gene exchanges and a myriad of trials and errors to determine which mutation were adaptive or not. We also find this first level in the guts and lungs where the same cell can feel changes its environment and act by participating in the movement of food and the clearance of mucus, respectively. The next levels apply to multicellular organism. At the second level, sensory cells connect directly to an effector cell, such as the cell possessing cilia for underwater propulsion. At the third level, the sensory cell relies on a separate intermediate cell, a motoneuron. To connect with an effector cell, which is typically a muscle cell. A well-known example is the knee-jerk reflex, where a muscle stretch sensor sends a signal directly to a motoneuron in the spinal cord, which in turn tenses a muscle. However, this is not sufficient to spontaneously raise your leg. Another muscle must be relaxed at the exact same time. This requires the fourth level. To silence the other muscle, stress sensors also send a signal to interneurons, which invert the signal via an inhibitory action, therefore silencing the motoneurons, which in turn relaxes this other muscle producing the knee-jerk reflex. You guessed it, the fourth level is the domain of the infamous interneurons, the cells that interpose themselves between sensors and effectors, forming networks that can coordinate many sensory cells and effector cells. Examples include all of our body uh, accomplishes automatically, such as breathing, walking, chewing, and bowel movements. One refers to this part of the brain involved here as the reptilian brain. The fifth level refers to when these complex networks of interneurons starts to have a mind of their own. That is, when they can model internal and external environment without relying on sensors or effectors. This last level is discussed in the fourth part. But before we talk about the fourth part, let us wrap at this point. Okay, let's wrap up. What we saw is that as evolution follows its course over 3.8 billion years, sensors and effectors became separated by intricate neural networks. Eventually, assemblies of neurons formed a predictive model of the reality in which species had to survive and reproduce. In part four, we related how in the early 1900s, Ramon y Cajal was able to visualize and characterize in extensive details the cells that interpose themselves between sensors and effectors. We then introduced Kenneth Craig, who proposed that our brain generates mental models as an interface between sensory input and motor output. Craig also put forward that such mental models served as predictors of the likely events to happen in the immediate future. In this manner, the most optimally adaptive action output could be implemented in a timely fashion, that is, extremely swiftly, 
it takes time for the brain to construct models. In the case of vision, the brain requires approximately 80 to 400 milliseconds, depending on the type of the visual stimulus. Considering that mental models act as predictors, processing speed can make a difference between life and death. Interestingly, mental models for moving objects are processed faster, which does make sense if you think of a rapidly approaching predator. Let us consider this obscure sentence. Between sensors and effectors, the in-between becomes sense, trying to make sense, compelled to make sense. Let us focus specifically on the in-between becomes sense. The segment refers to the fact that our brain builds predictive mental models constantly without the need of sensory input or motor output. We ruminate, we worry, we daydream, we drink, we think almost constantly, well, some of us more than others. This in-between becomes sense, as taken over the original definition of sensing that is using sensory cells. We sense without our senses, and that means we can drift almost endlessly. In order to survive, species are threat detectors. Predictive mental models are at the very origin of why we can ask, what is the meaning of life? To calm your drifting mind, you can connect to the primary sense of sensing, which means direct sensory stimulation with awareness. Observing your breath is one way. Connecting to the physical sensation of where rhythmic breathing feels more prominent, the air passing in and out your nostrils, or your chest or belly inflating and deflating. Hence, this is why the awkward sentence ends by let go, breathe, and come back to your senses. Another manner of connecting to your primary senses is by stretching or yawning. We tend to do both simultaneously. According to Bruce Hood, such action connects us back to the feeling of self. We appropriate the image of who we think we are. This is from Bruce Hood his book, The Self-Illusion. We have evolved to detect threats, real or false, when mental models can be generated without actual sensory inputs, they are free to model threats, real or false, or to model what seems mysterious or what does not seem to make sense. Sense, senses, sensing, it's all about sense, senses, sensing, and there are many definitions, is it not? Here are some mysteries. Why are we here on earth? Where do our thoughts come from? What is the soul? What is the mind? Etc. We can use our senses to feel our body moving when we willingly or sometimes unwillingly move it. The awareness we experience is a product of the brain, but we can establish a correlation between willing something and feeling it happening. This is all very well. But one can complicate the matter by reminding us that the feeling of willingness is also a product of the brain and that the brain needs time to generate our experience of free will. And yes, such time to generate the feeling of free will can exceed the time required to generate the action itself. There is experimental evidence that in some cases the feeling of conscious will can occur after the will action itself. 
see book um, The Illusion of Conscious Will by Wegner in 2003. The best-known experiment was done by Benjamin Libet as subject to lift each finger separately at their own sequence and will while they noted the precise time of their feeling of free will. Libet used electrodes to record readiness potential in a region responsible for generating motor actions, the pre-supplementary motor area, which when electrically simulated does generate motor outputs. And he found that all occurred half a second before the subject's reported time of willing to move a finger. This is a paper by Libet and colleagues in 1983. In fact, already in the 1600s, Baruch Spinoza postulated that free will is an illusion. In his book, Ethics, he wrote, The infant believes that it is by free will that it seeks the breast. The angry boy believes that by free will he wishes vengeance. The timid man thinks it is with free will he seeks flight. The drunkard believes that by a free command of his mind he speaks the things which were sober. He wishes he had left unsaid. All believe that they speak by a free command of the mind. Whilst in truth, they have no power to restrain the impulse which they have to speak. Close quotation. We can feel our heart beating and we can feel our breath. We can feel pain. In most cases, we can know the cause or perhaps ask a health professional to identify the cause. Our brain produces all of these sensations and it makes sense to us because these feelings are concrete events which we can observe ourselves with our senses. We can use our five senses to feel and associate these sensations with the stimulus, an origin, and a cause. We can appreciate the smell of freshly cut grass when looking at someone mowing it. It does indeed make sense. However, we cannot feel the activity of our neurons firing our brain does not generate a conscious sensation of neuronal activity itself because here is the infinite loop. These very neurons are the ones that generate a conscious feeling. Everything we feel, we experience, and we do consciously or automatically requires neurons. Again, an important take-home message is that neurons cannot generate a conscious experience of themselves firing. When you talk or sing, you do not need to deliberately activate each of the many processes that take place in generating sounds. This is a relief. Otherwise, it would be a tedious task. The same goes with thinking, ruminating. You do not feel the neurons firing. You do not have to activate these neurons one by one, let alone you have no direct control over them. You do not even feel them. The neurons that interpose themselves between your senses and your actions or intents or thoughts do not elicit a conscious sensation. Other types of cells are also involved, glial cells. And it is not only about neurons firing, but also about oscillations in cell potential and many other events. You are oblivious to all these events which researchers are still elucidating. Thoughts, therefore, appear to come from a void, from a mysterious place. You cannot stand not knowing, 
You need to know where thoughts, the mind, the soul come from. You attribute an external origin outside the body or deeply rooted in quantum physics or string theories or any other new physics that can provide a haven for the origin of the mind, the soul. And you ask why, why, why are we here? What is our purpose? Why do we die? What is the meaning of life? Again, evolution has led to species that create predictive models of their internal and external environments under the pressure to survive and reproduce, allowing genetic information to be exchanged, which is the only way evolution took place and still does. Evolution has no purpose other than being a passive outcome of genetic information being passed along and between species, vertically and horizontally. We are gene carriers. This is it. Or is it really it? The need to find meaning is related to our tendency to extract signals from noise, to obtain sensory meaning, from randomness, or from physical modalities that are unrelated to our need to survive and reproduce? What do we do with our capacity to form so many mental models that are not required for our survival and reproduction? Well, we create, we make art, we write poetry, we interact with each other, we invent fictive worlds, and we exert compassion. At least we have the potential as a society to do so. We also have the potential to annihilate many species, including humans. Technically, we have reached that point. Our human ancestors learned that as a group, that they could hunt bigger and faster animals than themselves. In the African savannas, our ancestors formed tribes and learned to cooperate as groups became larger, members started to rely on myths, beliefs, to create a social glue, to have something in common that would unite them, make them unique. Beliefs provided norms and values that were collectively shared within the larger tribes. One of the founders of sociology, Emil Durkheim, referred to communal norms and values as promoting a sense of belonging and of collective consciousness. The number of large tribes increased, each forming and developing their respective beliefs, something artificial that they could emulate among themselves, which eventually led to different languages, cultures, and religions. The need to give answers to existential questions and the manner in which these questions were answered depended first and foremost on tribalism, and today we still witness the best and the worst outcomes, according to Chris D. Firth. Based on his studies of interacting minds, culture creates us and we create it. Therefore, in looking for answers to questions such as what is the meaning of life, the answer is deeply rooted in the cultural context at which time the question was addressed. Let us travel in the 19th and 20th century Europe and meet with a particular tribe of philosophers. We bump into one of them in the café in the Paris neighborhood of Saint-Germain-des-Prés. She or he tells us while drinking absinthe, smoking gaulois and exhaling in our face that literally life has no meaning. Then what? 
We get that stance from reading existentialists such as Albert Camus, The Myth of Sisyphus, The Stranger, Jean-Paul Sartre, Being in Nothingness, Nausea, Simone de Beauvoir, L'État Moderne, Richard Wright, The Outsider, Friedrich Nietzsche, The Antichrist, Soren Kierkegaard, Fear and Trembling, Either Or, Carl Jaspers, Reason and Existence, Lay Shestov, All Things Are Possible, Apotheosis and Groundlessnesses, Franz Kafka, The Trial, Eugene Ionesco, The Ball Soprano, and Martin Heidegger, The Nothing. As with most of these intellectuals, we might conclude that life is absurd, as we just, like Sisyphus, condemn to rolling a huge boulder endlessly up a hill. Sorry for the depressing thought. Does it have to be so? If life has no meaning, where do we go from here? Compassion would certainly have its place alongside such statements. This part is not over. Keep listening, please. There is so much more than just saying life has no meaning. Otherwise, why would I make this podcast? Indeed, why am I doing this? Why? There is frustration when doing this podcast. Who will listen to it? This podcast is one of so many that addresses the meaning of life. It feels pompous to even go there. Why should I talk about it while so many others have pondered and offered answers? Even when presented with facts, we do not grasp them naturally. It is not an assumption one can make. It is not a given. We are biased. We protect our own vision of the world our own creation by our brain, genetically programmed to develop in a specific manner and to respond to environmental cues, also in specific manners depending on our genetic epigenetics and our societal, our societal pardon me, and cultural upbringing. So why did I make this podcast? It is an exercise. It's a process. And the selfish way I made it for myself to really clear my my thoughts, to develop them. Reflecting on the fact that life has no meaning ought to be depressing. What is the point of living really? So, about sorry about the tone here. The tone sounds very much like a threat. It is a threatening. Uh, it is threatening to think in this manner. One experiences the feeling of void that can be debilitating as fear detectors. But it is a false fear. It is not life-threatening. Well, ultimately, life is fatal at the end, but meanwhile, one can live fully. Besides the feeling of threat, something else is going on, the lack of reward. Throughout evolution, we have developed reward systems to support survival and reproduction. Reward is associated with evolutionary ancient aspects of the brain known as the limbic system. This part of the brain, called the ventral tegmental area, VTA, is located under the cortex and deals with emotions. A key molecule mediating the various emotional states we experience is dopamine. You could have a glance at, um, at the figure that I made in, in the book uh, called Feeling the Meaning of Life. So this podcast is based on the book... Uh, if you haven't realized yet, I call Feeling the Meaning of Life. And this is figure 28 of that book, if you happen <laughs> to have it. If not, well, by all means, be curious.
the evolutionary more recent part of the brain, the medial prefrontal cortex, exerts a certain level of control on our emotions. The medial prefrontal cortex and its connections to other brain regions are one of the latest aspects of the brain to fully develop as we grow up. We can picture babies as being essentially driven by emotions and teenagers having sh their share of experimenting with raw emotions and at times maladroit attempts at communications between their medial prefrontal cortex and their limbic system. Pathways between the medial prefrontal cortex and the subcortical regions mediating emotion can take up to 25 years of age to be fully developed. One of the latest maturing features is the coating of axons with myelin, white matter, which expedites communication. Back to threats. There are no rewards associated with feeling threats, but there can be a feeling of reward when being able to successfully deal with threats by predicting key aspects of our environment ultimately through our senses and acting accordingly. So what we feel, modulated by physical factors or through intrinsic emulations and dependently from any physical elements, and how we respond will determine whether dopamine is secreted as a form of reward or not. We can bypass the reward pathways by taking dope, such as opium, heroin, synthetic opioids, etc. Regardless of the origin, during these short moments, nothing else matters. There are no threats. There is only elation, bliss. Reaching such states in these very manners is highly addictive to a point that requires more frequent and higher concentrations of external drugs or compulsively re-engaging in an addictive behavior such as drinking, gambling, online pornography, social media, etc. The societal damage can be devastating. There are other means of experiencing powerful reward responses. Evolution has banked on reproduction and the associated reward orgasm, which has proven to be most adaptive. Orgasm is the ultimate letting go. According to Anif Qureshi, in his book Intimacy, sexual relief is the ultimate form of mysticism available to most people. At the coital climax, you accomplish, in theory, the most pertinent aspect of evolution, which is passing genetic information. We're talking about the species that rely on sexual reproduction to pass genetic information. This form of gene transmission is relatively recent, in fact extremely recent, on the evolution timeline. When a state of bliss or enlightenment is reached, religious or not, distinct regions of the brain are activated as supported by functional brain imaging techniques. There is a temptation to attribute these regions of the brain that light up when praying God as a proof of its existence. The fact is that the brain itself generates the concept of God into this mental model. One adds the state of bliss achieved when immersed in authentic prayer and contemplation. Together, these factors underlie the activation of clearly circumscribed brain regions. In brief, beliefs in external agents such as God or gods or other entities can act as stabilizing beacons with concrete measurable changes in brain activity, much alike mystical signatures. When someone reaches a state of inner peace, what is the point in telling her or him, God is a delusion. 
the key question that is perhaps less raised is why do we have the urge to believe, let alone why can we believe? Religion tends, transcends the reality we cannot fathom. And I'll say it again. Religion transcends the reality we cannot fathom. How can all this have happened? It must have been created. There has to be a God or some external agent, whatever you want to call it. How about nature with a big N, as Einstein and other scientists called it and still do? There has to be something more than us. That's non-materialistic neuroscience. The belief in God is a response to the lack of conscious awareness of the neuronal circuits that generate mental models. In fact, the belief itself is a mental model generated by these very neurons. The apparent endless loop or vortex as referred to by Rodolfo Linias in his book The Eye of the Vortex, where the observer and the subject are the same, that the action of observing is being observed itself, mirror facing each other, creating infinity, is a false issue, a seductive trap, focusing, even obsessing on what seems an infinite loop can constitute a powerful threat. But it is a trap that one can escape by putting in context the actual evolution of these neurons over 3.8 billion years, a frame, a scale that is beyond our perspective when being busy with surviving and reproducing. Now might be an important time to listen to Spiegel im Spiegel by Arvo Pert. Breathe again, breathe into this feeling of infinity, let go, conceptualize 3.8 billion years and a mirror looking into a mirror. Enjoy. We are looking for external agents. The ability to do so is an exaptation of the generation of mental models by our brain. Pseudoscience is a candy store for external agents. Several studies demonstrate that people who are willing to accept that their life is affected by external, non-reality-based forces tend to believe in pseudoscience. Even science itself is not immune to providing external agents. Take quantum mechanic approaches to consciousness. The external agent is located in a scientifically documented process. Doctors Eugene Wigner, David Baum, Roger Penrose, Stuart Amaroff, Carl Pribham, Henry Stapp, David Pierce, Frederick Beck, Michael Egnor, Paul Nunes, and John Eccles are examples of well-established scientists and philosophers who attribute consciousness to quantum brain physics and new physics. Positing that consciousness entails quantum mechanics as commonalities with pseudo-scientific movements that rely on various phenomena such as non-locality and the observer effect. See Eisenberg Uncertainty Principle to support beliefs in the supernatural including life after death. Some scientists not only put forward that consciousness functions beyond the confines of the physical body, but that it survives beyond death. With such reasoning, near-death experience support their argument. For instance, the Division of Perceptual Studies, DOPS, is a university-based research group that studies phenomena related to consciousness, clearly functioning beyond the confines of the physical body, as well as phenomena that are directly suggestive of postmodern survival of consciousness. Postmortem, please. 
It is not because countless books have been written and numerous TV programs and documentaries provide evidence in quotation for life after death that there is scientific proof. Death is terrifying for many and knowing that there is something after ought to be comforting. How about a dose of dopamine? Examples of hope abound. Life after death, powerful evidence, you will never die, in which the author Stephen Hawley Martin lays out, open quotation, indisputable evidence the brain is not the source of your consciousness. Rather, it is a receiver that connects and integrates it with your body. And when the body dies, consciousness is released. Stop quotation. You could doubt his credential knowing that he also wrote a book entitled The Success of The Secret of Successful Entrepreneurship. Start a business, grow a business, sell a business. Perhaps you would have more trust in the internationally acclaimed neurosurgeon Dr. Eben Alexander, who shared his own near-death experience in his book Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife. Dr. Alexander recounts waking up after near-death assured of a life beyond death, and equally confident that his brain was incapable of fabricating the journey he experienced. Feel free to search for more examples or well-established authors. They do indeed abound. The fact is that we will all die at some point, and this is it. However, we can live a humble, mindful, and yes, sacred life. As I mentioned before, rejectionism does not mean to desacralize. Quite the opposite. It means to be respectfully curious and to have the utmost respect for the world outside and inside us. One needs to be brave to accept the reality that there is nothing after death. Clarice Lispector, in the hour of the star, wrote, Because our living matter is greater than we are. Death is the ultimate threat. Why do we die? We die because we live. Why do we live? We live because we are the consequence of DNA being passed on through survival and reproduction of species, these when relying on sexual reproduction to do so. Therefore, once passing of DNA has been achieved, there is no evolutionary pressure to live longer. In some species, longer survival of the parents is favorable when the progeny needs more time after birth to become fully independent for its own survival and to be reproductively mature. Once there is no longer any evolutionary pressure to survive, aging processes can begin. In human, this means approximately under age, um, around the age of 25. You will, of course, not notice any obvious aging traits typified by wrinkles until the mid-40s, neck and hands are the most obvious sights. We mentioned in the first part of this podcast the progressive difficulty to focus near objects which occurs um, in the mid-40s. Therefore, how does the aging process manifest itself so early in life? In the mid-twenties, you might have heard of the shortening of telomeres forming the ends of human chromosomes. Telomeres shorten every instance a cell divides, which therefore limits the proliferation of human cells to a finite number of divisions. This is a very slow process that affects, obviously, only the cells that divide, such as skin cells. 
More recently, another process has been proposed. It has to do with protein complexes involved in maintaining the quality control of all proteins. One wonders how they maintain their own quality. <laughs> Since proteins are essential for cell survival, protein quality control processes, known as proteasomes, affect all cells of the body. Proteasomes will eliminate unneeded or damaged proteins by breaking them down, a mechanism called proteolysis. Other players that are absolutely essential in answering protein quality are chaperones and co-chaperones. Aging starts insidiously with the function of the proteasome and chaperone and co-chaperone becoming compromised. We can be jealous of species that have exceptional regenerative capacities and become in fact healthier with age. The hydra, jellyfish, clams, lobsters, turtle, flatworms, Greenland sharks, bowhead whales, water bears, and certain bacteria. In 2015, nematodes were restored to life after having been buried over 32,000 years near the Alizea River in Russia. This beats by far the record of the officially documented oldest human, Jean-Louis Calma, 21st of February 1875 to the 4th of August 1997. She lived for 122 years and 164 days. In conclusion, we have evolved to die after genetic information has been passed and can be further passed on by our progeny. We start aging approximately when our progeny has become autonomous. Once we understand the context, we can allow our life to be fulfilled and sacred. We can approach death with poetry, we can find beauty, and we can create it. Here is Mary Elizabeth Fry's gift to us in only 12 lines expressed as yambic tetramers, that is, 4 feet, 8 syllables per line, with the exception of lines 5 and 7. Do not stand at my grave and weep. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not here. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamonds glint on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awaken in the morning's hush, I am the swift uplifting rush of quiet birds in circled flight. I am the soft stars that shine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I did not die. Life and death remains mysterious for many, and it is a completely understandable longing to try finding meanings in external agent. Highly respected cognitive scientist Jerry Fodor was a strong opponent, proponent, sorry, of external agent, he maintained, open quotation, higher level theory of psychology or linguistics could not be captured by low level explanations of the behavior of neurons and synapses, close quotation. Interestingly, Fodor opposed Darwin's theory of evolution. In fact, it is by following evolution's trial and error that we can appreciate the continuous process of sensing and acting for survival and passing of genetic information. These very processes led incidentally, or one could say accidentally, 
to the interposition of interneurons between sensors and effectors, generating a predictive mental models of the external and internal world in which species continue to evolve. One must avoid being anthropocentric. We are not a purpose, but rather a consequence of 3.8 billion years of evolution. Some scientists managed to reconcile evolution with the belief in God. Take Francis Collins, who headed the Human Genome Project. When discussing with evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins about the proof of God's existence, Collins argued, open quotation, one couldn't rule out anything that might be outside of the natural world such as God, close quotation. You cannot rule out God with science. We will get back to this argument just 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 below. Collins continued, you might must you, your mind must be open to aspects you cannot grasp with science or that are outside of the physical world. On a long drive with the skeptic society founder Michael Shermer, Collins shared that whenever he experienced doubts, and he still does, he saw it as an opportunity to continuing growing the believing brain by M. Shermer. What I find fascinating is that according to Shermer, Collins does not need God to explain his scientific pursuits, such as understanding evolution and concluding that mouse and man share a common ancestor. Shermer proposes that Collins' belief has deep emotional roots, having seen his patients suffer as a resident and the role their fate played. Collins was emotionally shaken, which led him to read and become inspired by the writings of C.S. Lewis, who himself was a non-believer who eventually found God. Walking in nature, exhausted from overworking as a medical doctor, Collins also experienced the presence of God in that one instance. Therefore, it is possible to reconcile accepting evolution with being a dualist, just as believing in God or the supernatural. What about the continuous process of embryonic development? Another reflection point, which is also factual, is how every human being is born out of a sperm fertilizing an ovum, an egg cell. As is the case with evolution, embryonic development does not require anything outside of the domain of the physical. The fertilized ovum becomes a zygote, which then cleaves to form a morula, then a blastula, that will anchor itself in the endometrium of the uterus to continue dividing, then forming a gastrula featuring three germ layers, each leading to specific tissues, finally the nervous system beginning to form, followed by all other organs. Development continues after birth, with the latest organ to be fully mature being what? You guessed it, the brain. As we mentioned above, full maturation is estimated to be completed as late as 25 years of age. Again, the process is continuous. No external agent involved in human are only one example of the fact that reproduction in all multicellular species is followed by well-documented developmental stages. Of interest are the similarities of these stages and related genes and mechanism between species such as mouse and human. In fact, the mouse closely mimics human development from zygote to sexual maturity. 
Hence, its pertinence in scientific research. Zebrafish are also highly pertinent models of early human development and physiology. Science is the best tool we have to grasp the world we live in. Using the scientific method of experimentally testing hypotheses, the boundaries of beliefs shrink. The Earth is not the center of the universe. The Earth is older than 6,000 years. Evolution is a fact. We are oblivious to our thinking process, and these are very much part of our body. The beauty is that scientific observation remain disprovable if new experimental evidence refutes them. Science is a process. Beliefs tend to reflect the time of history when they arose, accounting for the scientific observations available at that period. Flat-earth societies created in the 20th century are one of the exceptions that confirm the rule. Some members are not serious, but others, such as conspiracy theorist Nathan Thompson, believe that the Earth is a disk with the Arctic circle in the center, while Antarctica is a 150-foot-tall wall of ice around the rim guarded by NASA employees whose sole purpose is to stop people from climbing over and vanishing into space. Here was a nice digression. <laughs> the belief is easy to refute. How about abstract concepts? A key issue is that we humans create concepts such as the soul, consciousness, God, which become entities of their own. As entities, the soul, consciousness, and God become the subject of studies. We can now devote our life to studying the concepts we created from scratch. Philosopher David Chalmers scanned the term hard problem of consciousness, which he claimed would be unsolvable even if he, we could at some point exhaustively explain the specific functions accomplished by the brain. Believers will continue to believe unless they are provided with scientific evidence that refutes their beliefs. Do you see the problem here? One creates an abstract concept that has no bearing with reality and expects to find evidence or counter-evidence in reality. A false debate is created. If we cannot find evidence within reality, then these concepts must belong outside reality. It has to be. End of discussion. Who are we to think we know it all? My stance is that one way out of this trap is to understand the origin of such concepts why we created them at the first place, and also how were we able to create them. There is one possible answer, and we talked about it again and again. Observe using science the evolution of predictive mental models that are independent of sensory input and motor output. These models have a mind of their own. They are the very foundation of why we ruminate. One argument to fuel beliefs is that science is not advanced enough or that science cannot capture all that exists. This is very much the stance of mind-body dualists. You cannot disprove that the mind exists independently from the body, from the physical. But you can ask how we came about to create this concept in the context of sensory evolution. In theory, we can venture there with humanity and compassion without representing any threats in theory. For many devoted scholars, it is hard to get the mind out of their mind, to get consciousness as an entity out of their consciousness as a predictive mental model. Take philosopher Philip Goff, who devoted his career to studying consciousness as an entity.
He states, Nothing is more certain than consciousness, and yet nothing is harder to incorporate into our scientific picture of the world. Stop quotation. This is from Consciousness and Fundamental Reality, 2017. Goff proposes that we need to revise our view of the physical world to accommodate consciousness. He put forward panpsychism which means that all matter is conscious, that consciousness is everywhere. In his view, matter does not suddenly become conscious by rearranging itself. Instead, consciousness is there from the start. Goff refutes mind and brain dualism by proposing that subatomic particles such as protons and electrons all possess a level of consciousness, and that by experiencing change, more complex forms of consciousness can be built up from the simpler ones. It ensures that all that we human can sense, the color red, the smell of coffee, a loving touch, have their very foundations in matter, which already possess consciousness. While trying to unify mind and matter, an external agent is introduced. Consciousness builds on intrinsic properties of subatomic particles that possess a basic level of consciousness. This is all according to Goff. He said, I open quotation, the intrinsic nature of matter inside of brains in the sense that both inside and outside of brains matter has an intrinsic nature made up of forms of consciousness. Close quotation. At the risk of repeating myself, the evolution of Homo sapiens is incidental, not a goal of trial and error in passing genetic information that allowed survival and reproduction. And this took 3.8 billion years, with 86% of this time spent as single cells evolving. The physical world we can fathom is limited to the physical modalities that had to be detected to ensure the survival and reproduction of our ancestors and distant cousins, and much more recently to the technology we have developed and we still do. We lack the imagination to be humbled by how limited our representation is of the physical world we live in. Both space and time are infinite continuum with no beginning and no end. We do not see atoms. We do not feel the distortion of time by gravitational forces. We do not see any of the four forces we have identified. We know them because of the tools we have developed. It is tempting to attribute external agents to the new dimensions of reality that were opened to us by the technology we develop and still do. According to Goff, consciousness as an entity is already present in subatomic particles. For some quantum mechanic can make, explain the mind. How about superstrings? They are vibrations, we are vibrations, and the soul is vibration, and the soul of all humans and the entire universe are connected through these vibrations. There will be more discoveries in physics alongside new explanation for the entities we created using our mental models to justify that consciousness, mind, soul exist independently of the body as study subjects. And this is not certainly what I'm proposing, but this is what's going to happen, I'm afraid. Fiction, even hostility, is bound to arise when arguing whether body and soul are distinct, whether there is something more than the physical body. Guess who was sitting beside pseudoscientist Deepak Chopra at the Channel 4 UK documentary The Enemies of Reason, 2007? Richard Dawkins, 
again on a mission to prove that God does not exist. The discussion turned into almost hostility. The scenario was similar when Chopra and Gene Houston, co-founder of the Foundation for Mind Research, debated neuroscientist Sam Harris and skeptic Michael Shermer on the question, does God have a future, at the California Institute of Technology in 2010. Imagine, had Bertrand Russell participated in such a debate, he might slightly have inflamed the tone, furthering by saying something in the likes of, open quotation, Religion is based mainly upon fear, fear of the mysterious, fear of defeat, fear of death. Fear is the parent of cruelty, and therefore it is no wonder if cruelty and religion have gone hand in hand. My own view of religion is that Lucretius, the same as Lucretius, I regard it as a disease born of fear and a source of untold misery. To the human race. Close quotation by, by Bertrand Russell. For the cherry on the Sunday, we would also invite the Blaise Pascal, who might have concluded, open quotation, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious convictions. Close quotation. I had my share of hostility in the most unexpected moment riding my bicycle up and down a hill. I came across a man walking. After 20 encounters, I stopped and engaged in a conversation by invoking the myth of Sisyphus. He replied that there was nothing absurd about going up and down the hill. It was a hot summer. The ice was broken. I told him about the podcast I was preparing, briefly stating the evolutionary continuity of sensory input and output in terms of the cells interposed between them to the point that these cells could create a predictive mental model without any input or output. I also told him that we could not sense these cells located between sensors and effectors, which constitute a mystery, a void, and require a need to rely on external agent. He told me he disagreed, which made me want to listen to his point of view. He said that all began with consciousness that I had it all upside down. He also said I was not truly listening to him, that I was arrogant and even a threat to humanity by ignoring the documented spiritual revelation of so many great thinkers. What had just happened was exactly what I wanted to avoid. No doubt he had issues with me on my bicycle beside the road trying to have a conversation. And yes, I might have shaken my head a few times while he was talking. He appeared very angry, started to walk away, saying he never wanted to see me ever again, also assertively stating I had no humanity. All I could reply as his silhouette shrunk in my field of view was that I was not angry. The practical issue is that I very much enjoy cycling up and down the hill and conveniently located behind my house. Shall I change my schedule to avoid another encounter, perhaps alter my physical appearance, or wear a full-face helmet and cover myself with a drape, which would look dubious on someone riding a road bike unless it were Halloween, which would limit the occasions to ride. A humbling experience for someone who is adamant that reductionism is compatible with humanism and compassion. It does take two to tango, so I accept my share of blame. 
In his book, The Meaning of Human Existence, and biologist O. Wilson, Edward O. Wilson says, open quotation, the great religions are also and tragically sources of ceaseless and unnecessary suffering. They are impediments to the grasp of reality needed to solve most social problems in the real world. Their exquisitely human flaw is tribalism. Close quotation. He adds that leaders of each religion and sect should, open quotation, publicly defend the supernatural details of their faith. Close quotation. And if they fail to do so, he recommends that we, open quotes, charge with blasphemy any religious or political leader who claims to speak with or on behalf of God. Close quotation. His answer to the meaning of life relates to our evolutionary development and what we make of our future. He states, this is again Edward O. Wilson, We are all genetic chimeras, at once saints and sinners, champions of the truth and hypocrites, not because humanity has failed to reach some foreordained religions of ide or ideological ideal, but because of the way our species originated across millions of years of biological evolution. I agree that that close quotation. I agree that one must absolutely consider the context of evolution. However, the challenge as a society is to educate with compassion. Call me a dreamer, an idealist, even call me naive, but I do think the greatest challenge is to compassionately educate humans so they learn facts about how we evolve and how our brain works, among many other fascinating aspects of our reality. There has to be a way to teach everybody without threats who listens to podcasts like this one, just very few. We need more of those passionate science teachers. Well, we need more teachers in general so that facts can be presented without hostility by role models and when possible in a playful fashion. Let us honor the annual winners of the Varki Foundation Nobel Teacher Prizes of $1 million dollar. Ranjitish Disali from India in 2020, Peter Tabishi from Kenya in 2019, Andrea Zafiraku from the UK in 2018, Maggie McDowell from Canada 2017, Hanan Al Arub from Palestine 2016, and Nancy Atwell from the USA in 2015. Once parents learn that they also can help their children to learn and to be more receptive in class and in life in general. Let me repeat this sentence with the actual punctuation. Once parents learn, they also can help their children to learn and to be more receptive in class and in life in general. We need to foster curiosity on why and how we should ultimately educate Steven Pinker states, open quotation, the goal of education is to make up for the shortcomings in our instinctive ways of thinking about the physical and social world. And education is likely to succeed not by trying to implement, to implant abstract statements in empty minds, but by taking 
mental models that are our standard equipment, applying them to new subjects in selective analogies and assembling them into new and more sophisticated combination. Steven Pinker, 2004. Education in its largest sense is part of the solution to getting along. That's me saying that. Um, Anatole Rapoport, education seems to be the only hope to spread enlightenment sufficiently wide so that people can no longer be manipulated to give consent to policies that will surely eventually lead to their own destruction. The Study of Conflict, 1968. So what happened to humanism? Can we get along as adults in trying to do so? I plead guilty. I did qualify Chopra as a pseudoscientist, which likely would have led to similar non-constructive Kutsak outcome. I also looked up his estimated net worth of 150 million US dollar and compared it to Dawkins' 10 millions, which is still up there. Back to Russell, he does inspire me, Bertrand Russell. I also draw pleasure from reading Kant, Immanuel Kant, the father of Enlightenment, and Montaigne, Michel de Montaigne, among others. Oh yes, you might have noticed that I'm nourished by the poetry. One of my favorite poets is Clarice Lispector. One can use poetry while avoiding the so-called pathetic fallacy a name given by British cultural critic John Rushkin, where humans' emotions, intense or conscious awareness are attributed to describe the natural world. If ever doing so, one must be transparent of her, his intent. For instance, in the first part, Ode to Transduction, the poem is obviously intentional in its prosaic form, while the scientific translation carefully avoid pathetic fallacy. The outcome is awful from a poetic point of view. So what I'm trying to say is if I take a poem and I try to change this poem in, in scientific truth, um, it's, it's awful. <laughs> Back on track. We need more poetry in our world. No serious um, seriously, really, back on track. Uh, here is what I propose. Compassion as opposed to confrontations and debates on whether God or external agents exist or not. Confrontations and debates fail the point as a society to evolve as a group. One can use compassion even with oneself. For instance, you listen to this podcast and you believe in God, in dualism and external agents, or you doubt, you're agnostic. Then you have kindness for you. You understand that ultimately what matters is the outcome on your take on life. Your profound desire to seek to embrace what appears to be greater than you. What you cannot comprehend. You feel bliss regardless of how you imagine the specific regions of your brain that are activated in my own moments of bliss. I very much share the same regions, the same territories where we can meet. Don't we all want to feel bliss? This podcast and the author are not a threat to believers. We all ultimately thrive from inviting the sacred in our lives. Why did you pick this podcast? Why I recorded it? For the same reason, I very much hope. The podcast you're listening to now is an attempt to explain the roots of such spiritual voyage to reach for the infinite, to be greater than oneself, to experience bliss, 
to live our spirituality. From its very title, this podcast aims at giving a meaning to life, a reason to thrive, to live fully, to embrace life. Simply saying there is no God could be a threat or be totally irrelevant to a believer at peace with herself, himself, themselves. Realizing there is no God is not where it stops. It is where it starts in your journey. Love oneself. Be in acceptance. Observe what we know. I, the author of this podcast, embrace the quest for a spiritual life without requiring external agents. This in no way precludes me from empathizing with believers in God, believers in the Spirit, mystics, and agnostics, those who do not pretend to know. My label is atheist, there is no God. And this does not define who I am as a human being, certainly not. Therefore, I rarely use this label unless the context asks for it. I am offering links between established observation, facts. I am not a threat to believers. Here is an opportunity to look at your beliefs in a more encompassing context. When addressing the nature of consciousness, do so by respecting what we can observe scientifically, what still holds at this point in time, i.e., what has not been disproved by observation. Again, consciousness is not a thing and therefore cannot be studied as an entity. Consciousness is a state of experiencing predictive mental models link or not to your senses and outputs. From a medical point of view, especially if you are an anesthesiologist, or, or you are the patient about to undergo invasive surgery, you will want a definition of consciousness. You will want to make sure that anesthesia will induce a state of absence of consciousness. We can all agree that definitions of states or levels of consciousness have nothing mysterious. There is no need for any external agents. Chemical substances can induce the loss of consciousness and they unlikely act on any external agents. Briefly, let us consider how we can study consciousness in humans while acknowledging that it is not an entity or not anything mysterious or metaphysical and certainly that it does not involve external agents. I mentioned that consciousness was a state. We are awake or in a coma or at graded levels in between those two states. There is one aspect we can clearly study, the level of consciousness. According to experimental psychologist and neuroimaging expert Chris D. Frith, who published over 400 peer-reviewed scientific publications, we can study two additional aspects. The second aspect represents the content of consciousness, what determines how a small amount of sensory information is associated with subjective experience while the rest is not. The third aspect is meta-consciousness, the ability to reflect upon our subjective experiences and importantly to share them with others. Considerable advances have been made on the intricately detailed mechanism that respectively underlie these three aspects of consciousness. Let us start with the neural basis that control the level of consciousness. Quoting Michael Gazaniga, 2018, at our most awake level, it's a summation of processes that all happen in parallel and our consciousness is a product of these interacting parts. Consciousness 
is a process that involves complex dynamic interaction of multiple brain regions including the brain stem, midbrain, and cortex. Specialized regions of the brain are activated together and through time. They are stitched together to give the illusion of a unified consciousness. Not surprisingly, consciousness involves long-range functional connections and synchronous oscillations between regions of the brain. Key distinct, key distant connectivity and synchrony occur between thalamocortical loops and large-scale cortical networks that link the frontal and parietal cortices, plural of the word cortex. The model putting forward that the recruitment of frontal parietal networks are essential to generate a subjective experience is known as Global Neuronal Workspace, GNW. According to the GNW model, different streams of information in the brain compete for the global activation of a widespread network or regions in order for a subject to access consciousness. More recently, Dinesh Pal and colleagues, 2018, obtained experimental evidence from anesthetized rats using selective reversals in specific regions that the prefrontal cortex does play a role in controlling the level of consciousness. Finally, studies using attentional blinks and transcranial direct current stimulation to potentiate or reduce neural excitability show the role of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex in modulating visual awareness. Under a coma state, these widespread connections and activations are lost, which impairs the integration of information between distant brain regions. Brain metabolism is also reduced, particularly in the frontal and parietal cortex, by at least 40%, which contributes to the loss of functional connectivity between remote brain regions. The integration of large-scale information is compromised. Deep general anesthesia also induces similar losses in consciousness without interfering with metabolism. There is experimental support that communication between the thalamus and the prefrontal and anterior cingulate cortices contribute to consciousness. Electrical stimulation of the thalamus was associated with behavioral improvement in minimally conscious patients afflicted with severe traumatic brain injury. Another way to link distant brain regions is to have neurons synchronizing their spontaneous oscillation, i.e. depolarizing at overlapping frequencies. High-frequency synchronization greater than 40 Hz links neurons locally, while low-frequency activity is involved in information processing between distant brain regions. This phenomenon is known as communication through coherence. With the electroencephalogram, one can measure three bands of slow oscillation, theta, 4 to 7 Hz, alpha, 8 to 13 Hz, and beta, 14 to 25 Hz. Other key players in regulating the level of consciousness are three distinct types of GABAergic interneurons that do so by modulating the dynamic reorganization of functional networks. Of note, levels of consciousness entail a great deal of neuronal circuit plasticity. There is one more region we need to talk about, the reticular formation. Located at the base of the brain within the brainstem, this region sends neural projection to the thalamus and cerebral cortex that modulate which sensory signal reach the cortex 
to elicit a conscious percept. In addition, the reticular formation plays an essential role in controlling the level of consciousness. Lesions to the reticular formation have been associated with irreversible coma. The second quantifiable aspect of consciousness is its content. What type of mental model is the brain generating? This concept is known as the global workspace theory. Specific mental contents, perception, thoughts, or intentions to act reach consciousness when attaining a global workspace that broadcasts specific contents throughout the brain. In this manner, an individual can adapt or his behavior according to ever-changing environmental context. While the ultimate feat of the global workspace is to provide the illusion that all sensory modalities are one and only, researchers have relied on visual tasks to yield insightful data. Let us consider a well-established experimental design, binocular rivalry. Subjects are presented with a face in one eye and a house in the other eye. They do not see a mixture of a face and a house. Just try it yourself. Instead, conscious perception of the face and house alternate every few seconds while the sensory inputs remains the same. A face in one eye and a house in the other eye. How do we know that? Volunteers are asked to press one button when seeing a face and the other when seeing a house. In this manner, brain activity shifts to match the perspective contents of consciousness. Processing a face and a house involves two distinct pathways. Consciously seeing a face, generating its percept, is associated with increased activity in the face area of the fusiform cortex. However, however generating the percept of a home engages the place area of the parahippocampal cortex. Now we can have some fun. We can use transcranial magnetic stimulation to selectively activate either of these two regions. Doing so in healthy volunteers alters both changes in detection and binocular rivalry dynamic. In the first part, we also presented an example of how the brain generates what you consciously experience as vision. There is this um, snake illusion um, that you can browse and, and find, and the rotating snake. And um, you feel movement, but in fact there is none. So nothing is actually moving. However, the brain region involved in visual motion detection, V5, is activated. In fact, electrical stimulation of this region elicits the feeling of motion, while brain damage circumscribed to V5 prevents subjects from experiencing motion, a condition called akinetopsia. To put the nail in the coffin, we also mention in the first part that experimental inactivation of V5 with transcranial magnetic stimulation induced temporary akinetopsia. How about contents other than those related to vision? How about your conscious experience that you willed an action? There are still intense debates on whether the experience of conscious will precedes or is even required to perform a task. What is clear is that functional brain imaging studies pinpoint a distinct brain region, the pre-SMA, pre-supplementary motor area, which activity has been linked with awareness of intentions to act.
specific electrical stimulation of the pre-SMA has been associated with the urge to move one specific body part to conclude with the content of consciousness one has to be conscious. Activity in the specific regions mentioned here also should be synchronized with the interactions between the frontal cortex and the parietal cortex as stated in the first aspect of consciousness, its level. Awareness of specific contents can also be modulated throughout inputs from the reticular formation. Take vision, for instance. In the first part, we mentioned that the only way eyes could send visual information to the brain is through neurons called retinal ganglion cells, or RGCs. For conscious vision, these neurons must establish contacts or synapses with relay neurons in a region of the thalamus called the DLGN, dorsolateral geniculate nucleus. These relay neurons in turn project to the primary visual cortex. For conscious vision, this is a non-negotiable prerequisite. Curiosity arose from studying synapses in the thalamus, the DLGN. Those between retinal ganglion cells and relay neurons account for only 20% of total synapses. Only 20%. So what happens with the rest of the connection? What about the other 80%? It turns out that a large number of synapses represent neural projections from the reticular formation. Thalamic reticular neurons onto relay neurons of interest, relay neurons also projects to the reticular formation, creating a reentry loop. The word reentry means that one region affects the other, which in turn affects the other, etc., creating a loop. The reentry loop between the DLGN and the thalamic reticular nucleus is known to mediate visual attention. To complicate matter, the amygdala involved with the prefrontal cortex in determining what is a real or a false threat also sends projections to the thalamic reticular nucleus. Do you get the picture? What you experience as conscious vision is somehow related to whether your brain unconsciously considers the visual stimulus as a threat or not. I will stop here because there is a lot to take in. However, before we move to meta-consciousness, I would like to revisit the part in the first part where we talked about a nice bracing statement at a cocktail party that we are blind on average 4.5 hours every day. We selectively lose conscious vision for about 0.1 second every time we deliberately peruse the visible world around us and another 0.1 second every time we blink. Back to the cocktail party. You join your hands together above your head to form a circle with your arch arm and ask the victim to move her or his eyes along the circle you created. Then you took turn, and your cocktail partner immediately realized the jerky movements of your eyes. These are called saccades. You explain that each saccade lasts about 0.1 second during which there is no conscious vision. You tally these 0.1 seconds for every time you peruse the world around you, each waking day, a total of around 150,000 saccades, an impressive time of 4 hours is reached on average. You also added the 30 minutes tally of blinking, yielding 4.5 hours spent 
blind every waking day. We also mentioned something about the toilet and the usual mirror found in such place. We propose that you would stand in front of the mirror and try catching your eyes moving. No matter how much you tried, you could not see your own eyes moving. The reason is related to saccades again. You moved from one target to another. Therefore, you elicited saccades during which you were blind. Or, if you prefer, lost consciousness about a specific content, vision. Your brain does not allow consciousness of your own eye movements, otherwise you would be dizzy and you might very well puke. Apologies to those who are listening and eating at the same time. Um, it is your right. You have to... You have no awareness of the processes that move your eyes. This is an example that the event generating eye movements occur unconsciously. Consciousness only accompanies the feeling that we will eye movements. Finally, the third and last aspect of consciousness as defined by Chris Frith is meta-consciousness or being aware that we are conscious or thinking about thinking. It can be both a gift and a curse. This is the type of consciousness that leads to questions such as what is the meaning of life. This third aspect allows us to think without any sensory input or motor output. Here's one example taken from vision. We just mentioned that projections from the eye via retinal ganglion cells to the DLGN, which relay information for conscious perception in the cortex, represents only 20% of the total number of synapses. In addition to massive inputs from the reticular formation, the remaining synapses also include inputs from the primary visual cortex itself, the supercolliculus, the pretectal nuclei, and even local DLGN interneurons. Moreover, the DLGN also receives inputs from brainstem regions that are not involved in vision, but rather in arousal and emotions such as the mesenchymal reticular formation, the dorsal raphine nucleus, the periaqueductal gray matter, and the locus cerulearis. Let us stop and think about this. If you consider projections from the primary visual cortex to the DLGN, you might think this is re-entry, and hence this could represent an infinite loop. Well, it is not re-entry because DLGN input to the visual cortex synapse are neurons from different layers. So it's not the same layers that receives input um, and that actually sends output. There are two different layers. So it's not re-entry. If you are a DLGN-related neuron, regardless of the source of your input from the retina or from layer 6 of the primary visual cortex, your role is to convey visual information to layer 4 and 2-3 of the primary visual cortex for conscious vision. There is no way you can tell whether the input is from the eye or from the primary visual cortex or other brain regions themselves. As such, you can see with your eyes closed and you can be blind with your eyes open due to modulary inputs from brainstem nuclei. We do it all the time. We form mental models that can be quite vivid and yes, we are blind about 4.5 hours each waking day when your eyes do saccades and blink. Think of someone focused mentally. Can you see her or his face or their face? 
But this has nothing to do with the real world. You can imagine anything. Often images appear out of nowhere. We do not know the precise circuits involved. But the fact that the visual cortex can stimulate the thalamus, which can then stimulate the cortex, is part of the trick. The brain can create sensory experience that have nothing to do with actually sensory input. We can ruminate and share our cogitation with others. And we can fully express our innate inclination to be social animals. Learning and memory are major players. The prefrontal cortex is also elemental in modulating higher executive function, such as those that allow us to be socially compliant. Perhaps this is not the time to swear, or perhaps I should keep my mouth shut, and so on. The last aspect is where we find the illusion of self and the multifaceted personality traits that make us unique. Thinking about thinking also relates to agency. I willed this action. Conflicts arise when you produce a movement or say something without intending to do so. Agency vanishes and the effects you intended to produce did not, in fact, occur. You pay a dissonance penalty. When prediction is wrong, such as in deception, not wanting to arbor the feeling our brain creates, taking these feelings as face values, interpreting these feelings as threats, even though they are a creation of the brain. Reacting to these feelings as if they were real threats inexorably wastes tremendous energy. One feels tired, depressed, so we find ways of overriding the dissonance penalty of energy expenditure to reinstate alignment with perception of reality using dopamine-like inducer, alcohol, drugs, overeating, sex, gambling, antidepressant, etc., to activate our reward centers. All these aspects have been studied experimentally and remain an intense field of research. Specific brain regions and their interactions have been associated with the multiple features of metaconsciousness. I will not venture further other than to remind us that there are major implications in our society. Only with self-reflection and introspection can you learn, adapt, empathize, contribute positively to our society, to your own well-being and to that of others. Therefore, paradoxically, while an analytic approach to thinking might sound cold and liken us to complex machine, we are learning about our capacity for self-reflection and introspection. Analyzing does not imply in any way, shape or form desacralizing. We need the sacred in our lives more than ever. We must apply the highest moral standards more than ever. As Pandora's box is revealed, possibilities are endless for the best and for the worst. It happened with nuclear fission, it could happen with malignant artificial brain modulation. Once we learn the facts that we are available through science, the facts that are available through science in the most compassionate, respectful and constructive manner, how do we live our life with this question, what is the meaning of life? Well, we feel it. We feel the meaning of life. Thank you.